Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello, everybody. This is Venk Belamkanda. Welcome back to the Always On EM podcast. Thank you for continuing to listen. It's been quite a journey already, and we're just in the beginning part of it. I get that. Um, Alex and I have had a lot of fun and really appreciate all the feedback you all are giving us. Please continue to give us that feedback on Twitter at alwaysonem or via email or through any of your podcast websites. Um, We really appreciate all of it. This recording is Dr. John Schupach talking about a life's journey's perspective on how we could be better at delivering healthcare. In fact, it's a call to arms, if you will, delivered in a masterful way, incorporating stories and perspective on the future. I don't want to give too much away. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to the voice of Dr. Nandan Anevakar, who's one of our cardiology consultants and critical care consultants here at Mayo Clinic, who is introducing him. Thank you for listening. Have a great time. Uh, thank you, Venk. Um, uh, I'd like to thank everyone um, in the uh, Department of Emergency Medicine for the opportunity to participate uh, in your grand rounds. It truly is an honor for me. Um, I have come to know John only very recently um, as he rotated through our CCU, but despite our short interaction, he has uh, left a profound impression. In terms of his skill as a physician, I would sum it up by stating that I would gladly uh, have him care for any one of my family members. In terms of his personality, I would best sum it up as humble and unassuming. In terms of his experience in the world, even at such an early stage, I feel that it has been both broad and deep. And in terms of his purpose, it appears to be one of genuine servitude. And I think that you will see this uh, pervade through his presentation this morning. Overall, I'm honored to call John a true friend, and I'm excited to see him present at today's conference, which I promise will spark your curiosity, and which I hope will bring a seed for further conversations. With that, I'll hand it over to John to provide us some insight into the concept of disruption to afford progress in the healthcare space. Thank you, John. Nandan, thank you so much for your introduction. That's so kind of you. Uh, This is truly a special talk for me today. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It's my favorite thing to talk about. And joining us today are people who have been instrumental in my journey to get here today from truly around the world who are joining us. So good morning and good evening, wherever you're joining from. Thank you. In 2013, the Cassini spacecraft was out studying the rings of Saturn and turned its camera back at Earth and took this photograph. It's really profound, I think, because everything we'll ever experience, everyone will ever know is there in this photograph on that pale blue dot. In 2011, I was really struggling in life. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I lacked a sense of purpose. I knew that I wanted to help others, but I didn't know how. And I'd been rejected by all 17 medical schools that I applied to. I decided to go and spend a half a year in India. And I did that. I went and lived on the outskirts of Delhi uh, next to this slum community called Patel Nagar, a community of 25,000 people. I was fortunate to be placed in the home and care of an amazing family, the Ratras, Mumta and Sri and their daughters, Naisa and Naima, 
who I am tremendously honored are joining us today from Faridabad. Every day I went and I worked in the hospitals. There are 26 physicians for every 10,000 people in the United States. In India, there are only eight. In this photograph, I had just witnessed this team of five individuals perform their 220th operation that day. I would return home every day to the Rochers residence next to the slum community, and I would see how people lived in these communities, most of whom with families of eight to 10 people could live in small homes of only six by eight feet. But I was most touched by the children among these communities, 70% of whom would never attend a day of school in their lives, who you could see were brilliant, yet just lacked opportunity. I'd chosen to go to India because it was just unfathomable to me. In India, there are 1.38 billion people. There are more people in India than the entire Western hemisphere of the earth. One in six people currently alive lives in India. And the gross domestic product, or the amount of money in total spent throughout an entire year in a certain country, divided by the population of that country, is radically different. In the United States, it's about $64,000 per year. In India, it's 1,900. I expected to see uh, poverty and uh, different ways of life, but what was most striking was just a few miles down the road, a Ferrari dealership and posh luxury. And it's just this close juxtaposition that was so striking to me. The most egregious thing of all that I saw was this sense of injustice that these children who were so capable were just trapped and without opportunity. If they'd just been given it, what could they do? There were two kids that really stood out to me. One was Neha, here she is at age seven. This, these photos were taken 10 years ago and Ajit on the right. Just, you could see the innate talent in their eyes. I felt, really overwhelmed by the level of need in India. I knew that even Bill Gates could go over with all of his money and hardly make a dent. I said, well, maybe I can just help these two kids. So I went to study and the local education system. I went to government schools, I went to the private schools. And one day I walked into the Carmel Convent School and I met the sisters there, Carmelite nuns who totally changed my life. They sat me down in the principal's office and asked, what can we do for you? And I said, I have these kids that I wanna bring and introduce you to. I took Neha and her family, Gudia and Gayatri, their mom. We loaded up in the family rickshaw and we went and we met the sisters. They were so taken by this that they wanted to see where I'd been working. It was just a few hundred yards away, but they'd never been in this large slum community, tied up in doing their own work, managing their large and very successful school. They allowed these few first students to attend. This was Neha getting fitted for her first uniform and on her first day of school. Her life in an instant totally changed. She joined a first class of 21 students and we started a new organization, Squalor to Scholar, that we've been operating for the last 10 years. It's truly changing destiny for these kids. Neha has been an incredible student. She's grown and studied and been a leader for her family. She's grown into a delightful, talented, and mature young woman. And I'm truly honored that she's on this call today too. Ajit, similarly talented, never seen a kid so excited to get a lesson plan. Proud to be able to attend school, completely committed, and a joy to be around. 
Ajit too is joining on our call today. And I'm proud of them tremendously. They've changed my life. More than scholar scholars change theirs. We've changed their families' lives. We've changed the trajectory of their entire families. We've changed their siblings' lives and we've changed their communities. We've expanded their horizons, shown them new capabilities, and it's been just a complete privilege. Through this process, I've gotten to be introduced to other schools and other sisters and other leaders, people who commit their entire lives, who you'll never meet or hear about, but who do God's work. And in doing all this, we became a trusted resource for the community and kids started to come with healthcare needs too from around India, some days tra sometimes traveling as far as 600 miles over two days of train trips to come find us, just because we represented people who cared. We helped where we could to get them the care that they needed. We expanded, we built teams, and the organization continues to flourish today. And Mamta, I know you're listening right now, Thank you for truly changing the trajectory of my life. But again, I sat back and I thought, this is great, but how do we do this for more people? This is just a small drop in the bucket. How do we provide the best healthcare and education to the most people as rapidly as possible? I was doing a lot of reading at the time. And I found this book one day by complete circumstance in a Barnes and Noble. Disrupting Class by a guy I'd never heard of, Clayton Christensen, a professor at Harvard Business School. The book changed my life as well. It gave me a framework for thinking that allowed me to put language to things that I had been thinking about and observing and to put into action those thoughts. Another book of his was Innovative Prescription here on the right. Um, applying these same theories of disruptive innovation, which you've probably heard about a term and theory that he coined and we'll talk about in a minute. And in his book, Innovator's Prescription, he cites Mayo Clinic almost ad nauseum. When I reapplied to medical school, coming back, knowing that I wanted to be a doctor to be able to affect change in the healthcare and education system, I was totally uh, stunned when I came to interview at Mayo Clinic. It's a entirely unique in a class of its own. And I interviewed that day with uh, Dr. Garth Ace, one of our neonatologists who was instrumental in providing my acceptance to come here for medical school. And I'm honored that he's also joined us today. We think of the Mayo brothers and their uh, father, William Worrell, as great doctors, but actually I would think that they're even more successful because they were entrepreneurs. They built an institution and partnerships and mission alignment and attracted amazing talent and people who developed a system that has changed the world and brought us all here together today. But in the United States, our gross domestic product or the total amount of money that we spend every year across the entire economy is $21 trillion. We spend $4.1 trillion or about 18% of that on healthcare. Yet at Mayo Clinic, our revenue annually is only $15.9 billion. 
again, we're sort of just a drop in the bucket. And more broadly throughout the world, there are 7.9 billion people. Again, in the United States, 330 million people. Yet at Mayo Clinic, we only treat 1 million patients per year. Why so small? How can we do what we do for more people faster? How can we provide the best healthcare and education to the most people as rapidly as possible? There are many great organizations, many great leaders, all trying to do different things. And we all look at the world through different lenses and through our own sets of experiences. I come from a family of entrepreneurs and I enjoy studying businesses. When I plot out a pace of an individual's impact on the y-axis, the ability for an individual to impact uh, massive change versus the ability to do that and the, the pace at which you do that, plotted on the x-axis, I think Mayo Clinic's about here. We're relatively able to perform high, uh, to create a high impact and moderately fast, probably faster than most other healthcare organizations. Maybe not as fast as smaller, more nimble startup healthcare companies, but certainly much faster than big, more bureaucratic public health agencies, and certainly faster than the government. Yet we're taught that if we want to make an impact in healthcare, we should study public health and public policy, and we need that. But I think the real opportunity is in the large business space. It's something we never learn about in all of our healthcare and medical education. These companies in the top right corner are truly changing the way we do and spend our entire lives and our daily lives. They touch every part of it. Again, we bring in a revenue of $15.9 billion a year. Apple brings in $365 billion. Walmart, $559 billion. We're a nonprofit organization. These are for-profit organizations. The for-profit publicly traded company with a similar revenue to Mayo Clinic is Kohl's department store. And if we think about the world and impact more broadly of the 7.9 billion, again, we treat 1 million patients per year. Certainly we make a bigger impact than just a million patients, right? We have, we, we uh, conduct research, make products and discoveries that change the whole world. But actual patients who come through our doors and who are treated by our clinicians is 1 million. McDonald's serves 69 million customers a day. Amazon Prime has 200 million Prime members. Apple has a billion iPhone users. And Facebook has 2.9 billion monthly active users. We hear often about costs in healthcare and it is a huge problem. In 2019, uh, employers contributed an average of $14,561 to their employees' uh, health premiums. And workers contributed 6,000. Now we only usually interface with the 6,000. That's what we see. The 14,000 is behind the scenes. And in total, it's $21,000 a year for the average worker in the United States that is going just to pay for their healthcare premiums. 
this disproportionately impacts people on the lower end of the economic spectrum. If you're making only $30,000 a year, you might actually be making $51,000. But the vast majority of the earning power that you've conducted is going toward your healthcare. But we know that there's an economies of scale. As you increase the quantity of products or services you deliver, the costs reduce and decay drastically, almost in an exponential form. You reduce variability, you reduce errors, and you increase quality. We spend a ton on healthcare in the United States. We spend about $11,000 a year per person. And in India, it's $257 per year. The pre pre predominant um, model for payment of care in the United States is employer-sponsored health insurance model. 49% of Americans uh, are part of this model. And so as a patient, you work for an employer, you get wages in return, your employer pays premiums to a third-party insurer, you as a patient pay premiums to a third-party insurer, and then you get risk coverage in back. And so when you get care, you actually pay a copay, but then the healthcare provider submits a claim and gets reimbursement. And this, in essence, is how healthcare is conducted. So even though you just want to do one simple visit to a doctor, all nine of these other things have to occur. And the government insurance model is exactly the same. Instead of premiums, you just pay taxes. But people who uh, are proponents of a, a single payer system are just proponents of a single third party payer, the government. It doesn't actually change the model for how we deliver it. And 41% of Americans are a part of the Medicare and Medicaid market in the United States. And that was just for one visit. If you do this for pharmacies and labs and among other healthcare providers, the complexity gets extraordinary rapidly. But the most egregious thing of all is that we as healthcare providers providing care to patients is where all of the value is added. But our patient is not our customer. Our customer are the third-party insurers. They're the ones who are paying the bills and to whom we submit the claims to get the payment. This is a misalignment that has to be fixed. People say healthcare is too expensive, it's too complex, it's too difficult. I think we're just looking at it wrong. We have the right vision and desire. We're just using the wrong tool and the wrong lens to think about it. We're looking up at the stars with a microscope when we need a telescope. When I was in engineering school, we were allowed to take these, uh, this is a photograph of some of what we called like cheat sheets into our exams. We were given index cards. And we were able to write any equation or law that we wanted to take with us into the exam. And they let us do that because the, the essence of problem solving in engineering is uh, not that you have a theorem, it's what you, how you think about problems. It's based all on your assumptions and it's how you apply the laws and theories and equations that matters. You can look those up. First principles thinking is a way of looking at problems from the ground up. When you think back to your high school physics, you had simple problems like this. You had to state your assumptions. Maybe you assume that this is on earth where the gravitational constant is 9.8 meters per second squared and that you're above a certain, you're at a certain height and you throw the rock at a certain velocity. Then you apply laws and theories like laws of Newtonian motion and the conservation of energy to predict an outcome that the rock will fall onto an exact point with a certain force at a certain speed. 
the person who's popularized first principles thinking is Elon Musk. And he says that the normal way we conduct our lives is we reason by analogy. We do things because it's like something else that was done or it's like what other people are doing. But with first principles thinking, you boil things down to the most fundamental truths and then reason up from there. When he sold PayPal in the early 2000s, he was really interested in, in, in uh, ambi um, intrigued by what we were doing to um, explore Mars. He, he checked in and had some meetings with NASA and was stunned to find out that no one was actually pursuing it. And so he started to look into this. And what he realized it was just too expensive and it wasn't a, a priority of NASA or anyone else. And he was dismayed by this. And he realized that rocketry was totally expensive and complex and just this um, intricate closed world. The thing that made it so was that all of these rockets uh, when launched were disposed of at the end of their single use. They burned up in the atmosphere or were ditched into the oceans. And his analogy was that if you built a 747 just to fly it across the Atlantic Ocean and then ditched the plane after, no one would fly anywhere because it would be tremendously expensive. He knew that we had to create reusable rockets if we were going to reduce the cost. And he knew that he couldn't start with that. And he started with an iterative model, starting with the Falcon 1, finding a profitable way to reinvest those profits into building bigger and bigger rockets. And he's made incredible achievements in the space race or in uh, our, uh, our desire and our ability to go interplanetary. In the 1980s, it cost $85,000 to launch a single kilogram into space. Falcon 1 brought that down to $9,900 a kilogram. And most recently in 2020, the Falcon Heavy brought that down to $951 a kilogram. We're now back in space. Private for-profit company delivering American civilians into space and orbit. And right now, as we speak, they're testing Starship and it's being assembled. It's going to be the largest rocket ever launched. And just next year is slated to take this Japanese billionaire as the first civilian to orbit the moon. People say healthcare is too expensive, too complex, and too difficult. Yeah, this is a mess. But if we can make steps, meaningful steps, toward creating an interplanetary species and for international rocket-based travel, we can fix healthcare. We have to start by rethinking what our assumptions are. We assume all this has to exist. But in reality, we've created all this. In essence, it's all, it's just us human beings needing care. ICD-10, co-pays, coding, documentation, level five charts, the Joint Commission, Medicare and Medicaid. We've made all of these things. When Will, Charlie and William Moore all practiced and someone needed a house call, they went to the patient's house. They didn't worry about what ICD-10 code they had to use. And the best way to strip away all of these assumptions is to travel and to realize none of this exists for Dalti in India. We can't solve problems 
by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. Einstein's theories of special and general relativity changed the way we fundamentally think about our existence and about energy and mass, the foundational building blocks of everything that we know and understand. A similar theorist, Charles Darwin, changed our perception of evolution and of life and our role. A theory is just a set, an idea or set of ideas that is intended to explain facts or events. One of the preeminent theorists I came to realize in our own generation is, was, was the late Clayton Christensen, the business school professor that I told you about his books of earlier. He was a giant in business and in leadership and management. He wrote books that truly changed the way a lot of our business and organizational and government leaders think about the world. Theories allow us to look back, to recognize patterns, and to quickly shape judgment and action. We know that both of these are cats, that both of them are angry, but we know that one is much more dangerous than the other were we to encounter it in real life. We quickly ascertain patterns to make judgment, to shape how we look into the future. We have to choose the right tool for the right job. If a pathologist used a telescope, it'd be useless. Clay and his work inspired me to go attend business school. And it was also a tremendous honor to be able to go and learn from him in his classroom. And not just that, but to become one of his mentees. And he and I worked together during my last semester there on thinking about how do we not just change a certain company or a certain part of healthcare, but how do we disrupt the entire thing? And I wanna to share today a little bit about some of the theories um, and lessons that he taught me. In his class, over the course of a semester, you, every single class, you go through a different theory. And at the end of it, you kind of have this collection of ways and theories to look at the world. And they are just that, they're theories. They have to be used in the right scenarios. Uh, if you, again, you have to choose the telescope if you're gonna look at the stars. We're gonna start with his uh, most famous theory, disruption. Disruptive innovation is a theory that describes how existing companies in expensive and complex markets are ultimately overtaken by small organizations with simple products that better fulfill a customer's needs. And what does that mean? Let me show you. Why, Clay started with a question. Why do great organizations fail? U.S. Steel, Digital uh, Equipment Corporation, Kodak, Blockbuster, were once incredible big household names. And none of them exist anymore except for U.S. Steel in a small uh, shell of its former self. Disruptive innovation, when plotted out, um, uh, is like this. And on the y-axis, you have a performance of a product. And uh, on the x-axis, you have time. And you have a certain customer need that they're uh, seeking to fill. And certain customers need high-end, high-performance products. Some customers need low-end products. And then there's a distribution. Kind of most people need kind of a medium quality product. And companies go on a trajectory of sustaining innovation. U.S. Steel, at the time of the Mayo brothers, was one of the largest companies in the world, founded by 
uh, Andrew Carnegie and JP Morgan, Charles Schwab. It was the first company to surpass a billion dollars in market value. And they were in the business of creating better and better steel products. They created the highest quality steel products with the highest margins for the most distinguished and discerning customers. Yet at the bottom level of the steel market is rebar, just your foundational uh, component of any building. It's cheap. It doesn't have to be specific. It can be manufactured to low tolerances. And a new entrant came on the line in the 1940s called Nucor. And they started, all they did was make rebar. And it slowly over time, they also pursued their own sustaining innovation. And slowly they crept up market and made better and better products and ultimately became the largest steel company in the world. As incumbents focused on improving their products and services for their most demanding and usually most profitable customers, they exceed the needs of some segments and ignore the needs of others. As disruption kind of evolved, this became to be known as low-end disruption. And Digital Equipment Corporation was a company in the 50s that started out making mainframe computers for engineering firms and financial houses. They made, they, if you needed a big calculation, you went to Digital Equipment Corporation. But then in the 80s, Compact Computer came along. It didn't fulfill the needs of the engineering houses and the financial firms. But for your average person who might need just to uh, um, manage inventory or do some simple calculations, it did a great job. And slowly, as the computing power of the personal computer increased, Digital Equipment Corporation shuttered its doors. Then as the theory evolved, disrupt, disruptive innovation came to include uh, new market disruption. And so that consists of a whole new measure of performance. It's not just high performance, it's, it's somebody looking for a completely new performance metric. In the early 2000s, we probably all were customers of Blockbuster. They had 9,000 stores, 85,000 employees, and they were within a 30 minute drive of just about every American citizen. Yet Netflix came in and in just a number of years, completely changed the market. Instead of a value proposition of being close to someone's home, they sent the DVDs by mail and they just sat there in your home until you were ready to watch them. It was a different value proposition. And it, in situations when you may not have been consuming the movies before, now you might have a movie uh, sitting at home ready to watch and you might watch more movies than you did in the past. But why don't companies disrupt themselves? Kodak in 1975 invented the digital camera, but they viewed it through their typical lens of manufacturing great film. And they said, digital photography will never match the quality of our film photography. They failed to realize that the digital camera was not an inferior quality product. It met a different need. Digital photographs are more shareable, they're easy to copy and replicate, and you don't have to deal with the messiness of film and negatives and um, developing. Companies have a competitive advantage, things that they're great at, things that they do better than anyone else. And they develop resources, processes, and priorities to sustain and improve those things. Kodak made great film, and they developed factories and hired great people 
who are experts in film. It was hard for them to see the opportunity and to be able to be a big player in digital photography. And that's okay, because that's what capitalism is about. As our needs changed, we migrated to new technologies and Kodak became obsolete and withered away. It's the evolution of business. Companies are like planets with a gravitational field around them. Their competitive advantage maintains things in a certain order and things that are too disruptive to that are often just sucked right back in. But to really create meaningful and disruptive change, you have to reach escape velocity and get outside of the orbit of your incumbent organization. Turning a company like Kodak is like trying to turn an aircraft carrier. But rather than turn the whole ship, sometimes all you need to do is just launch an aircraft off of it and let it go and do its own thing and become its own great success story. Netflix was able to do that. In 2007, they said, we see that DVDs are going to go by the wayside, but there's this new thing, streaming, that we think is going to take over. And they bet the farm. They literally, in a matter of months, transitioned their entire business model to streaming. And even though they were delivering a billion DVDs by mail, they realized that that wasn't going to last much longer. And they jumped ship. People thought they were crazy. Their stock price plummeted. And yet today, Netflix is one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world. And they've totally changed the entire value stream of how we produce, create, and consume entertainment content. At Mayo Clinic, we're on this sustaining innovation trajectory. There are opportunities at the low end of healthcare and in entirely new markets, which we'll talk about in a minute. A second theory I wanna talk about is business model innovation. What is a business model? In its essence, it's simply just a transaction. It's a person agreeing to obtain something from someone else. We focus a lot on what something costs. Is it 10 cents or $10 or can you trade something for it? But we forget often to think about the other parts of a business or the who, what, when, where, and why. Who's buying the product? Is it me who I want a lemonade? Or is it the Department of Emergency Medicine who buys 100 lemonades and provides them with our pizza for being on red light status? When do you pay? Do you pay before you get the lemonade? After you get the lemonade? Or is it like healthcare when you pay three months down the road? Where do you pay? Do you pay at the time of sale or on a portal or somewhere else? And why do you pay? The key essence of it all. A business is really made up of three components. The crux of it all is the value proposition. What is the job that your customer is trying to do? People don't simply buy products or services, they hire them to do a job. People don't buy a Louis Vuitton bag just to have a bag. There are many better bags at a lower cost that can carry better stuff and more effectively, but they're buying it to convey a certain status. And the competition might not be a bag at all, but a Rolex watch. When I bought a Delta flight to go home and be with my family for Christmas, 
the competition wasn't necessarily uh, transportation and or, sorry, the job that I was trying to achieve wasn't to get an airplane ride or be transported somewhere else. I want the job was to be with my family. And we're seeing now that I'm able to be with my family who's on the call right now via Zoom. When Nissan came out in 2010 with the Nissan Leaf, they thought they wanted to build a big mass market electric vehicle. But they found people didn't really want a mass market electric vehicle. They wanted the best car. This was the Tesla Roadster at about the same time. When people have products that are aspirational and that feel their needs, they have a willingness to pay for them. We'll come back to that. The second component of a business model is the operating model. What are the resources and processes and priorities, the people and the buildings that you need to create your product? When you create a product, you make it for a certain cost. And everything between that cost and the customer's willingness to pay is the value that you've created. The third part of the business model of a business model is the revenue model. Again, who pays when, how? When a customer transaction actually occurs, they pay a price for the product. And you as a business capture some of that and are able to reinvest that back into the business. So it creates this cycle of creating value, delivering value, and capturing value so that you can find more jobs to be done and more problems to solve or value to deliver. In 2006, Elon Musk outlined his plan for Tesla in a white paper on the Tesla website. And essentially at the end of it, it said, so in short, the master plan is build a sports car, use that money to build an affordable car and use that money to build an even more affordable car. They built the Tesla Roadster and they sold 2,500 of them. They reinvested the profits of that into making the Model S and reinvested the profits of that into making the Model 3. Now one of the most widely sold cars that's truly changing transportation and will convert us from uh, a car ownership to a transportation as a service model. The last theory I wanna talk about is modularity versus interdependence. These are both computers. One's a Dell, one's an Apple. They both look pretty similar, but they're totally different. The Dell business model is to assemble the products of many other companies. They take the chips from Intel, the software from Microsoft, and they sell it through different retailers like Best Buy. Apple, on the other hand, is completely interdependent. They build the software and the hardware, they assemble it, and then sell it through their own retail channels. It's called vertical integration. Horizontal integration would be, for example, if Dell bought HP or if Best Buy bought Target. Most of our approach to healthcare is expansion and growth through horizontal integration. When Mayo Clinic grows, we think about buying other hospitals. We don't think about buying insurance companies. This integration allows you to provide products and services that are very sticky or uh, that create incredible loyalty and are become integral components of your lives and are difficult to do away with. This shift from interdependence to modularity is kind of like a pendulum. Over time, customer sentiments go from one side to the other. 
In the 1990s, we all listened to Walkmans and bought our CDs at record stores and maybe used Napster to make them. Um, but then the iPod came along and it completely integrated how we bought and consumed music. And today the pendulum swung back in the other direction and we listened to Spotify and Pandora and YouTube music. Apple Music is still a player, but it's been completely changed. SpaceX, Apple, Netflix, Tesla, they're all very interdependent. They make things really from the ground up. Um, others like NASA used to make their rockets by contracting with literally thousands of different companies. So what good is theory if you can't apply it? Is there someone out there who's really applying these thoughts and principles? At HBS, over two years, you study 500 cases and you study protagonists in those cases who are usually leaders or founders of a company who are facing a certain dilemma. And on the very first day, my very first case at HBS was about Narayana Heart Hospital. It's a for-profit, private, publicly traded healthcare company that has reduced the cost of care of cardiac surgery to under $2,000 and provides care to 2 million patients per year in 40 different sites throughout India and surrounding South Asian countries. People travel from around the world to go here to uh, Narayana Health City on the outskirts of Bangalore. And I had the great fortune just before coming to residency here at Mayo to go and spend a month working with Dr. Shetty, the founder and chairman of the organization. I got to operate with him and his sons and his team and experience the way in which they deliver care at an incredibly low cost to millions of patients a year. Their processes were perfected. The floors like factory assembly lines and everything done meticulously by paper. Teams for everything. Great facilities. I lived on campus. I ate in the hospital cafeteria and just studied everything I could about the organization. I was stunned at how ICUs in the morning, pristine, clean, completely empty, by the evening were filled with patients from the operating room by the hundreds, teaching amazing residents, doing incredibly complex cases. It was there that I met this man, Dr. Colin John, who I see him smiling right now at me on Zoom joining us. Dr. Colin John has performed over 30,000 pediatric cardiac surgeries. He's one of the most experienced cardiac surgeons in the world. And he's developed and been instrumental in creating an organization that will provide amazing care to many millions of people for many decades. It was shortly after this photograph that Dr. Colin John also told me about his daughter, Dr. Kavita John Pierce, who I now take full credit for recruiting to our residency program. Which brings me back full circle here to Mayo Clinic, Rochester, to the St. Mary's Emergency Department. What does this mean for us? Again, 
At Mayo Clinic, we're on this sustaining trajectory. We create tip of the iceberg care. We are the pinnacle of medicine. We create that highest quality product to the most discerning customer. In healthcare, what's our rebar? Where is no one else focused right now? I personally think that's primary care. It's the foundation of everything and there's no money in it. No one's focused on it. What's our Netflix? What's the new measure of performance that people are going to care about? Is it brick and mortar, high quality care, or is it more care at home and telemedicine and digital products and AI? This is the future. It's vague, but it's for you to think about. I have plenty of ideas. When we think about the business model of care, it all comes down to creating value, delivering value, and capturing value. In healthcare, we often think about, well, our product has to meet everybody's needs. But if we start with trying to make a mass market product, that's hard to do. You can't build a factory to produce 100,000 cars right out of the gate. You have to be iterative. And Elon Musk understood this. That's why he created the Roadster, the Model S, and now the Model 3. Lastly, when it comes to interdependence and modularity, healthcare is just as fragmented as it can be. It's a completely modular system. One patient might have dozens of companies that they have to interact with to achieve even the simplest of tasks related to their health. We're more integrated than most, slightly less than some, but there's no one over in the truly interdependent side of the pendulum swing. Healthcare is super complicated, but we've made it complicated. All of these lines are decisions that were made by people before us trying to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, we're all just people trying to be healthy, live long, meaningful lives. And it's up to us to question the assumptions that we make. Because at the end of the day, we're just spinning around on a rock, flying around in circles in a vacuum. What does it all mean? Why do we do the things that we do? And what's your goal? And with that, I'll leave it. Thank you so much to the wonderful group of people who have truly changed my life over the last 10 years and helped me get to this stage as I near the completion of residency. To have you on this call today is one of the most meaningful things I've ever had the privilege to do. And many of you have changed my life in a demonstrable way. Dr. Colin John, Dr. Ace, Neha and Gudia, Mumta and Sri, Adrian, and my parents, thank you so much. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Shupak. That was unbelievable, uh, truly. We have time if people want to share their thoughts and reflections with Dr. Shupak. Um, please unmute yourself and, and do so. I just want to say extremely proud of you, John. Um, uh, this is a testament to the way that we need to start thinking differently. Um, and I congratulate you on uh, uh, outstanding performance. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dundon. And thank you for mentoring me on this talk and for your true profound inspiration in the cardiac ICU. I look forward to many further discussions.
Great talk. Um, this is Tolodifu in Florida. Um, I think you're right on the money about primary care. Um, a lot of primary care physicians are quitting their job to do what's now called um, direct primary care where people pay cash up front. Mm -hmm. um, so that's definitely the route that medicine is going to eventually go back to is where we started from. Um, it's kind of seems to be coming full circle. I agree completely. From my end, honestly, the the message you try to convey was exceptional and one we we don't hear often. And the way in which you did it with your visuals and your storyline um, made it very personal and easy for us to relate to and attach to. And um, I think it sets quite a high bar for uh, for everyone who's going to present at Grand Rounds in the future. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Vink. Thank you. John, so humbling. Touched at the lucidity of your presentation. Thank you, at Dr. the erudite way in which you presented it. And really, I had tears when you started the whole thing. God bless you. Stay blessed always. Thank you so much. Lovely Dr. meeting an individual like you. Well, likewise, Dr. John, thank you so much for your inspiration. You God bless you. Thank you. John, Jim Rami, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Um, thank you. I want to ask you a very challenging question. Yeah. Um, and, and it's this, often with new or innovative or different types of ideas, one word comes up. It's actually two words, uh, but it's hypo there's a apostrophe in it to make it shorter. It's can't. We can't do that because, and then a litany of things. How does one overcome that in such a regulated inst uh, institution as medicine has become in the United States? And I, I assume it's not quite as overly regulated in other countries. And certainly the way in which we consume our media has nowhere near the amount of regulation, although there are some. How does one overcome that? in the, that complex regulated system that we've developed? That's a great question, Dr. Hami. I think for me, it comes down to, you have to find where there's the greatest need. The pandemic brought about an incredible need to think about different ways in which we provide care. And all of a sudden we couldn't, you know, in the past we couldn't bill for telemedicine and then overnight a flip switched and uh, a switch flipped and all of a sudden you could bill for it. And so people started to do it. Uh, we, we can't do things because in large part, most of the time, it's because we haven't done them that way before. Um, and when you're put in circumstances where there's great need and just not enough resources to fill a need, you can find people and regulators uh, who are going to be flexible if they recognize that same need. I think the pandemic has been a great example. I mean, in the, in the spheres that I operate in as a pediatrician and an emergency physician, there was as a pediatrician, you can't see somebody over 18, 19, 20, up until we need you to. Yeah. Uh, and now you're going to. Uh, and so I, I really do think disruptive things like global pandemics have some silver linings and you pointed out that. And I think that I, I, I completely uh, agree with your, the, your line of thinking, which therefore makes it correct. Uh, no, but, but I appreciate the way in which you think about things and, um, help to, us to think about ways to innovate just even in our 
individual ways of interacting with patients, uh, but also more on a global scale. Thank you. Great talk. Thank you. those are great points, Rebecca. And, and this is, you know, a, a continual dilemma that we will always face. And I, I go back to the car example of saying, yeah, I, I want to provide the highest quality care to the 4 billion people on earth who have less than $10 a day to spend. But I, I can't do that today. As an individual, what I can do is I can think about providing a low volume, but really high quality product to some. And I think, you know, that was my example of Elon Musk and building the roadster of thinking, well, we have to start somewhere and let's start with the people who can afford it so that we can reinvest that in to higher and higher volume products for uh, people with lower purchasing power. And I, I agree with you. It, it's a dilemma that I've often faced. And do you start these ideas as for-profit or nonprofit, you know, we're, we're continually think that healthcare has to be this nonprofit uh, venture, but there's a ton of people making profit in healthcare. They're just in a step removed from patients. They're in the insurance side of things or in pharmaceutical pharmaceuticals, tons of people making a lot of money and reinvesting those and making better and better products. But we, we kind of have this avulsion to it in, in aversion, excuse me, uh, in healthcare. So I, your point is well taken, Rebecca. I think about those things often. John, thank you so much for this talk. It was really interesting. Um, I kind of want to piggyback off of what you were just saying and Rebecca's question a little bit. Um, and I'm going to assume you don't quite have a good answer for this, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, coming from a business background, one of the things I always think about when we talk about multi-billion dollar corporations and vertical integration is um, kind of too much power sitting in one hand to drive the process. And while you gain nimbility and flexibility, and while you have a lot of resources in order to accomplish a lot of different things, how do you stay on kind of that altruistic drive that is inherent in healthcare? And how do you balance those kinds of, you know, profit-driven things with the idea of actually making iterative changes? That's a great point. I'm glad you asked it. I think business is one of the most powerful tools in the world. In terrible hands, it's a terrible tool. In great hands, it's a great tool. And I think 
leaders like you and I are the ones who are positioned to be the leaders of those institutions in great hands. And it's, it's up to us to really create the guardrails. And Rebecca, this kind of alludes back to your question. You know, we can create guardrails of our own. We can regulate ourselves. We're doctors. We do it every day. We make those decisions based on for our patients. That's up to us. And that's what leadership is about. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.